Hello, hello, and welcome to the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast for May the 4th, 2018. Happy Star Wars Day to everybody. I have not seen the last several movies, so please don't tell me how they turn out. Now, I, I, I know how they turn out because that, you know, I don't really go to theaters uh, very often. Um, it It's expensive, it, crowds are annoying. I would rather be able to spend two hours as I see fit. You know, I mean, uh, maybe I'm spoiled. I'd rather see a movie at home and pause it and then uh, go do what I need to do, go to the kitchen, go to the bathroom, go let the dog out, whatever needs to be done around the house. That's how I prefer my entertainment these days. Uh, and it's kind of frustrating to me that if I wanted to watch Last Jedi now, where would I go? Or if I wanted to watch what's one before that? Force Awakens? Where would I go? I'm not entirely sure. Because, uh, you know, I call me old school, but I sort of miss the blockbuster days when I saw the John Oliver thing about um, blockbuster still existing in Alaska. I really like that. Anyway, it's May the 4th. It's Ranting Soccer Dad. Uh, the guest today is the man that you will want to know if you want to know anything about coaching and refereeing in lower division youth and adult soccer in Germany. His name is Ian Plenderleith. As you can guess from the name, he is not originally German. He is English. Uh, spent many years in the United States. That's where I know him from. Uh, he and I shared the RFK press box uh, for several years. Uh, he now lives, coaches, parents, and referees in Germany and has a lot of experiences and has the writing skills and the uh, elocution skills, the storytelling skills to tell, tell it all very well. He's written a number of books that will be linked in the show notes. You know, there's one we did not discuss, which is Rock and Roll Soccer, which is his story of the old NASL, the original. And I did not talk with him about the current NASL. Now, I've written about the current NASL perhaps way more than I should on the Ranting Soccer Dad blog. And I, I wanted to address that a little bit because it's an unfortunate situation in journalism where the facts tend to be on one side. Or, put another way, one side just doesn't have a lot of... Uh, have the facts or have relevant context to things. And that's where I find myself with the NASL right now. And it's... A lot, sometimes people look at it and say, oh, well, that's bias. No, it's, it's not bias. It's where the facts lead. And looking at Rocco Camiso's offer of $250 million that will expand if things go his way, there are a lot of questions with that. There are a lot of oddities with that. It strikes me as it has struck other people as um, what Elaine on Seinfeld once called an invitation. Uh, basically an invitation that's meant to be declined. Uh, I know Rishi Sagal has um, offered a counterpoint to that in his conversation with Nipun Chopra Soctates, which I go through in my second post on the subject. But I, I would say at this point, I don't understand the case for keeping the NASL brand name alive. And that's an opinion. 
and I try to do more news and analysis and less opinion, but I think that it's just worth noting that I just don't I don't see it. Now perhaps instead it's not really an opinion, it's just a sense that no one that I've seen has really made the case to me that the NASL, those letters, need to survive. Lower division soccer, yes. And all the things that are ascribed to the NASL, developing players, developing coaches, developing referees, yes, that can all take place, but it can take place in the USL, it can take place in the NPSL, it can take place in so many other places. It could take place in a new lower division league. And I don't understand why there isn't momentum to form something new rather than try to revive something that has twice failed. Also, just interesting side note here, someone passed along to me recently a uh, soccer manifesto. One of the things he suggested was that we, the soccer community, need to rebrand everything, and that included ditching the name soccer. I think it's probably a little too late in the United States to try to claim the name football, at least to the extent that if I were to say, hey, did you see the football game last night, that someone's going to know that I'm talking about uh, LA Galaxy versus New York Red Bulls or uh, Barcelona versus Valencia and not the Colts versus the Bills. I think we've pass that a long way. Maybe we need to come up with something new. Maybe we should maybe it should be the Calcio. Maybe we should all go to Italy and call it Calcio. Or call it football, which actually some people do. There are, as I'm finding in my research through youth clubs, there are a lot of clubs that are called football club. F-U-T-B-O-L. Uh, the Spanish word. So I found that ironic in the context of looking at the North American Soccer League which you can look at and say, okay, well, it's not really North American, not in the sense that it represents the best of North America. I mean, certainly, even if it were Division One, the U.S., I think Mexico would have something to say about that. It And right now, it's not a league. And if it were to go to a pro-rel uh, pro pyramid, it would probably be more of a division than a league. And then finally, it's not soccer if we have stopped using the word soccer so it's really none of the things that it says it is so again I I if someone wants to make the case to save the NASL again not saving lower division soccer which is and trying to build something out of lower division soccer I understand that the Cosmos paid better than a typical USL team did that's understandable I'm sure there are some other NASL teams that paid well as well. The problem with that is that a lot of those teams no longer exist. That's a problem because people come in and say, oh, I'm going to pay my players this and we're going we're gonna to do all this and then they lose a ton of money and then the team isn't there anymore. That's unfortunate reality. So again, if you want to see any of that, go to RantingSoccerDad.com and just check out the things that I've been writing on that. This conversation is a little different. This is with Ian Plenderleith, and it was unusual before we started the podcast proper. Uh, fortunately, I was recording, uh, but before I really started the conversation, I just happened to ask 
if the level that he was coaching was similar to what we would call recreational soccer in the U.S., and he gave an interesting answer to that. So I'm going to go ahead and put that in now. So the next voice you hear will be Ian Blenderleith. Um, there's not really any such thing as, as recreational soccer in Germany. You wouldn't, you don't have, um, basically people who can't play don't play. So, uh, my experience of re- refereeing recreational soccer in the U.S. was that, uh, people played just for the, the hell of it and the joy of it, whether they could actually play soccer or not, right up, right up to, uh, adult level as well. Um, generally here people would just find other interests because you get excluded from the system, uh, rightly or wrongly, fairly quickly. I know I, do, I coach an under-7 team as well as an under-15 team, and um, you all, already uh, you get the impression that some kids are just not interested. It's not necessarily that they're not any good. It's just that they wander off the field and start chasing butterflies and <laughs> run off their run off to their mum and uh, and generally disrupt practice by picking the ball up instead of kicking it. So, so um, if, if there is exclusion, it, 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 it tends to be by self-choice. I don't, I don't think you, you, you wouldn't find here that people are necessarily kicked out. They're just sort of eliminated by, by, uh, by a process of, of, of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? By, by a process whereby... If you stay, tried to stay in the system, it wouldn't be much much fun for you because uh, you just would not be able to compete. So, for example, a boys under fifteen team I coach, we are not high up in our division. We're not high up in the structural system. We're very much at the lower end. Um, but a number of really good and talented players on the team. And even at that age, age of 14 or 15, some of them still harbor the dream of, of, of playing at a much higher level. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's right at that age to, to rob them of that uh, illusion, even though uh, probably none of, none of the boys on my team will make it to, to a particularly high level. But there are many documented cases of, of late developers too, so it's it's not impossible. It's just unlikely given the incredible array of talent there is uh, in Germany. And I see that refereeing at, at higher levels than the level I coach at. It's sometimes it's actually quite frightening um, and you just wonder where they've all come from and how are they all so good. <laughs> and and uh, the, 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 the fact that you know so many of them are going to be disappointed, so many good players are not going to make it because there's just not enough uh, room in the system. Um, it, it's almost heartbreaking when you see them. And I think back to my own youth when I used to harbor the same kind of uh, delusions about becoming a professional. Um, it's, it's not something you ever give up. It's not some, I don't think I gave up that idea until I was playing in the Montgomery County over 35s recreational league. And I finally realized that I definitely wasn't going to make the grade. But uh, uh, I used to discuss it with a, with a friend of mine in that team who was 10 years older than me and we both discussed how we regularly dreamt that night of playing for a professional team and he, he was originally from Turkey and he would say he would regularly score goals for Galatasaray in his dreams where uh, I, I was uh, appearing for Glasgow Rangers or DC United uh, DC United Reserves in one dream so it, <laughs> you don't want to, 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 tell, to tell young young people you know uh, well forget it mate you know you're just not good enough you want to keep supporting them and you want them to stay in the game even if 
it's only going to be at an amateur level. And, and I know how much I've got out of the game all my life. Uh, and I hope to, to keep instilling in them that football is more about participation and joy than it is about uh, playing in the Champions League final one day and making untold, uncountable millions of euros. So that's a bit of a teaser of what's to come in this conversation, and we do talk a bit about how Germany has a structure to where a player in the 49 billionth tier of soccer can still be discovered uh, and that's something that we don't have in the U.S. Now geography is a problem, culture is a problem, history is a problem, uh, but it is interesting to hear how it works over there and to hear some of his interesting stories about refereeing and coaching and so we, we talk about a little bit of cross-cultural stuff and also what he sees from it as a parent. So here it is, the conversation with Ian Plenderleith. Our guest today joins us from Germany by way of England, by way of the D.C. area, by way of who knows where. Why don't you fill in the story and uh, tell us who you are and how you got there? Hello, my name is uh, Ian Plenderleith, and I uh, used to live in Washington, D.C. for several years as a football journalist, uh, an amateur, very much an amateur recreational player, uh, a coach, and a referee. And I used to cover uh, DC United for, for a number of publications and Major League Soccer as well. Uh, three years ago, uh, my wife is from Germany. And I, we moved back to Germany, to Frankfurt, uh, where I continued to uh, referee and uh, resumed my coaching career, which I vowed I would never do again after uh, my daughter's teams were done and dusted with in, in America. And um, finding that the whole process uh, of the way football is played, coached, uh, watched and officiated in Germany, uh, which was a country I thought I knew, uh, has been a bit of an eye-opener for me after, after living in the United States. Now, you have a blog, uh, Referee Tales, uh, which, in fact, you've just updated today uh, with um, something about the offside law. Um, and you mentioned that uh, you have people who complain that you have cruelly robbed them of a point in the District League Division Nine. So, <laughs> so what it, what tier of the German pyramid is that? Is that the ninth tier, or is that, or does the counting kind of start below the regional league? So, is that actually more like thirteenth or fourteenth? Well, the District League Divisional 9 was a rhetorical device. Uh, it doesn't actually <laughs> exist except in my imagination. But I do referee at the very bottom end of the of the German amateur game, partly because of uh, my age and uh, partly because that's where referees are very much required who have some experience. Uh, I have 10 years of refereeing experience now. And uh, the bottom end is where you get a lot of frustration. You get players who used to be good but are not quite as good anymore. You get the players who tend to be uh, the lower end of the spectrum because of a lack of discipline. And deep, even though we're talking about the, the barrel, bottom of the barrel of the German game, there's, there's still a reasonable standard of play. 
Um, but the the sporting values um, uh, are not quite what you you would wish for. Uh, certainly, coming from from a background in, in England where we were very much taught not to not to chat to referees, not to deliberately foul people. But but I think that's uh, that's changed in England as well now. That's a sporting philosophy that's several decades old and probably as outdated as I am myself. Um, so the blog, uh, I started to write the blog two seasons ago um, because I really needed on Monday mornings to get the games out of my system. A lot of verbal abuse, uh, a lot of weird things happening in games, a lot of funny incidents, but uh, it, it struck me as I, as, I, as I started to referee these games that every game in itself is different. You meet different characters, no matter how insignificant the game is in the greater scheme of football and humanity, there's always something to talk about. There's some uh, point of the rules, some point of personality, some uh, incredible thing that happened involving a spectator or a coach or a player. Uh, and you just it just opened your eyes anew to to the game of football, the game of soccer, and I and and. and I'm still learning. I'm 52 years old, and every game I referee, I think I'm learning something new uh, about the laws of the game, how to officiate a game, uh, about the game itself, and also about human nature and the human condition. And it also uh, it also gets me out of the house. As a, as a, a freelance writer, I spend a lot of time during the week at home, stuck at my desk, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was also um, the, the I brought up my two daughters at home while my wife went out to work so I very much value that human contact no matter how um, frenetic uh, and uh, high, highly intensive it can sometimes be out on the soccer field so this lead sounds very much like the over 30 co-ed league at the Fairfax Sportsplex <laughs> that I've played, <laughs> played in, uh, where, uh, it, it's like that except it's all contained on a very small indoor field, uh, because that's where we're playing. Um, but you've, you've mentioned that you're referring both the adult level and youth level, is that correct? I've, I've noticed. Yeah, yeah. Right. I've youth games as well and, um, it's kind of a strange contradiction. The pay is is lousy for both, um, but you get paid much less for youth games, even though they require a far greater level of fitness. When you're refereeing under-17 and under-19 games, um, the standard is not only much higher than, than many of the men's games, but uh, they, these lads move pretty fast, as you can imagine. So for that, you get paid a grand total of 14 euros and plus plus travel expenses a men's game you get paid uh, 22 euros which is approximately the same in, in dollar terms maybe a little bit more so um i find that uh, the youth games are more challenging um but they can also be more enjoyable if you do have a, a good game a good cut and thrust encounter but uh, youth football, uh, youth soccer is also where there is uh, a different kind of level of antagonism and uh, unsportingness compared with the men's. And that's probably because uh, these, uh, a lot of the youth players and youth coaches are very ambitious, um, both in a personal sense and for, from the coach's point of view. They want to further their careers. They want to be seen to, bringing up player, to be bringing up players who are, are young potential talents for the future. And 
the players themselves, especially I find an under-17 level, they're at that age of adolescence where there's a lot of things going on in their heads and in their bodies, and that can also lead to some some really uh, uh, some really um, kind of situations where you have to remain calm in yourself and you have to uh, be firm and disciplined uh, with the players involved. There's a lot of dissent, uh, real back chat to the referees. Uh, there can be some nasty fouls. If things start to take off between two particular teams, they may have a history of each other. If they played in the same city like they have here, then uh, thing, things can become quickly uh, unpleasant. Now, um, uh, what I was going to say has just actually slipped out of my head, so you, um, you're going to have to bear with me, Bo, and ask me another question. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you mentioned when we chatted a little bit before that there's this really isn't what we would in the U.S. call recreational soccer. That there are people who still harbor ambitions of playing at a at a higher level. Um, so if you're not in an academy, if you're not in a, a Bayern Munich's academy or 1860 Munich or, or or Frankfurt's, or, you know, Eintracht Frankfurt's academy, uh, then um, then where are you playing? And who, uh, what's the process? Do you have to try out for these for these clubs? Or uh, they, yeah, how's it work? It works in that if you are a good player in Germany, you will almost certainly. Be spotted, and and that is down to the to the uh, bottom up structure uh, of the league systems, which uh, accounts for youth soccer as well. So, if we take say uh, the example of Emre Chan of Liverpool, who was born here in Frankfurt and played at a club just up the road from me, uh, Blaugel, uh Frankfurt, until the age of twelve, and then he was picked up by by. Eintracht Frankfurt's uh, youth academy. Now, Blaugelb is the kind of club uh, that plays in my youth league. Uh, my my team actually plays against them, and so and as I said, my there's a general level of, of amateur clubs in the city that are that are approximately uh, all on the same on the same kind of standard. And um, so, if you are a youth player. Uh, you 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 will be spotted by somebody. The, 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 there's a below the academy system. There are uh, 366, um, not exactly training centres, but training uh, nodal points in the country across all the regions. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, the, the, they employ, I think, a total of 1,300 coaches, and these offer a kind of like extra training. So if you're playing for a, a club. Uh, an amateur club and you're spotted first of all you, most likely you would be be uh, allocated to go to as well as playing for your club alongside it you would have this extra training at, at these uh, regional centers so uh, um, it's it's very well structured in, in that uh, unless you're playing out in some village uh, that's not involved in the league and and the far side of east germany near the polish border um, if you if you Display the requisite talent. There are there are so many coaches, so many people come to watch these youth games. It, it would the idea of, of somehow slipping through the net, um, uh, which I think is probably more prevalent in the U.S. I think that uh, is, is very unlikely in, in Germany. There's just so in, in Frankfurt alone there are 70 soccer clubs, and that's only a city of 700,000 people. 
Um, so it, it gives you an idea of, of, of the, the it, it's it's number one sport in Germany uh, by by a long way, uh, much to the chagrin of some of the other sports. But there's just no no getting around it that this country is absolutely soccer uh, crazed, and um, everybody talks about the local team in Frankfurt. I mean, it's just you, it's, the number of times I had conversations in, in D.C. where people didn't even know about the existence of D.C. United was used to be quite disheartening. And uh, you, here you can go to your, your orthodontist or your, your, your uh, you know, <laughs> you talk to your, your bin man or the, your tax advisor, whoever it is. I mean, you, the, the lowest common denominator is, is a conversation about Eintracht Frankfurt. And uh, people who live in the city support them uh, unquestioningly, unless unless they've come from outside of the city. It's just it's just uh, one of those things where uh, it's part anchored as part of the community and the clubs themselves on a micro level are, are anchored in, as as part of the the the, the intra communities within within the city. So is the, is the number two sport biathlon? I'm, I'm sorry. What was the question? Is the number two sport in Germany biathlon? <laughs> I know it's very popular. <laughs> you, is it really? Actually, well, you know better than I. I, don't, I, know, I, I I'm as bad as the next person. I don't pay much attention to the other sports here either. I think um, ice, ice hockey, basketball is is actually a little bit up and coming uh, in Germany. Uh, well, it's always been quite popular, but it seems to be becoming more popular. Ice hockey is, has always been reasonably big. Um, and then you're looking at like ping pong is is kind of uh, kind of popular. Cycling is is pretty big, um, right. but, but these are all tend to be sort of seasonal and uh, marginalised in terms of, of media coverage, and uh, uh, they don't stand. I mean, the, the weekly magazine Kicker, actually bi-weekly magazine Kicker. Uh, it's supposed to cover all sports, but it's it's ninety ninety five percent soccer in there. You you, you don't really have a, much chance of getting in there unless you win a, a gold medal at the Olympics or something like that. I didn't realize Kicker was biweekly now. I guess that uh, it, it used to be weekly, didn't it? Is that a sign? Of, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they bring out the Thursday edition now simply because there are just so many games to cover the, the, the European games as well and so much happening in Germany we, Germany traditionally used to be like soccer was just Saturdays only and they have a name for when they used to when the clubs play midweek they used to call them English English weeks because they think the English are crazy for always having games on <laughs> in Wednesday night um, and they still do call it that but uh, it's, it's, with, with uh, European competition now being such uh, so much while widespread with the introduction of group phases and the rest of it, Ger- German teams are playing in midweek as well. So they started to, to to bring out a Thursday Thursday edition too. Okay, so it's twice weekly then. It's uh, okay. Yeah. So the training centers that you mentioned, um, I know that was a big part of the the book Das Reboot. Um, so do, is that strictly training or would you ever be called upon to referee a game where one training center is playing another training center um i know that I don't, well the the uh, the elite training centers at the, the the academies at the clubs play against each other in the in the junior bundesliga um so uh, they, they 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 do run teams but the uh, I think the elite schools, as far as I, I, I can tell, they are they are residential with a um, uh, very much a focus on on 
passing exams and developing as young people and having extra training. Um, I'm actually, I don't think that they, they run teams in themselves. I think once you get to the, to the uh, academy, the club academies, the next selection process after that, after that is to be uh, selected into um, uh, the, the German national team youth setups. Or there may also, there may also be um, uh, regional games as well, uh, where the, the different states play against each other. Um, but those games do not get any kind of coverage as far as I see. So I'm, I'm, I have to plead a little bit of ignorance there. They may happen, but I, I don't know about them if they do. Um, but the, the, the big, the big uh, emphasis is, is on, on the youth teams at the clubs. And uh, Eintracht Frankfurt, for example, uh, recently sacked the, the coaches of the uh, academy team hmm. because uh, they were in danger of relegation. And that was going to be uh, quite a big deal for them. And, and the two... Coaches they sacked were long-standing players who were club legends, and so it was it caused a bit of a shock oh boy. Uh, in, in the Frankfurt football establishment. And it hasn't. I think they have they have one game to go, and they have to win it, and they have to rely on another team to lose. So the other thing that used the, that Frankfurt, for example, used to have was an under twenty-three team, which is the reserve team, uh, which can play as high as the German third division. Uh, they cut that team in order to save costs, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the other professional teams have done that as well. And once you do that, there's no going back on it. So uh, now I think there's only uh, Werder Bremen has a reserve team in the German third division, and they've just been relegated. Um, uh, so most of those uh, reserve teams play in in the fourth. Uh, regional fourth division, and there's always been a debate about is, is is that good for development? Is that good for the German league? And when the reserve teams travel, uh, for example, they take virtually no supporters with them. Even at home, they get very poor attendances. So you can have games in the German third division with three figure crowds, which is um, definitely not good for, for football. And you could have. Um, much better supported teams from the lower divisions who would have those places and, and economically for them it would be hugely beneficial. So, uh, um, I think that may, that may be a system that's slightly, uh, on its way out. And I know in England they've been talking about introducing that system uh, to much protest. Um, but I, I don't think that's a way forward at all. Right. And that's, that's an argument we go through in the U.S. now with the USL where, where a lot of the teams are uh, are MLS reserve teams uh, these days. Um, so, with in the youth system, you mentioned Eintracht Frankfurt's on the verge of being relegated. Is um, is it all interconnected? If if theoretically, if Eintracht Frankfurt were to be relegated multiple times, would they end up uh, down in your league playing uh, the? Playing the clubs <laughs> at your level, or is, is it? Uh, if, if they chose to still having teams, uh, still have teams representing them, yes, yeah, that, yes, that 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 could happen. So uh, FS FSV Frankfurt, uh, the second professional team in the city, mm-hmm. which uh, up until a couple of years ago was in the second division, they're now in the regional fourth division. They they have uh, multiple local youth teams as well. They have a very good youth youth uh, youth uh, system there too. They have a good reputation. Um, but it does, it can get down to the point where there, some of the, uh, lesser teams will be playing against, against the likes of <laughs> teams that I coach. So it, it is, it is, it is all, uh, interconnected. But, um, my guess is as if, um, that Eintracht's team, youth teams would not, 
uh, just by a process of, of the meritocracy, it would be very unlikely that their teams would, would fall down that far. I think there would be a number of fired coaches and inquiries before before that would happen. <clears throat> right. It, well, it's it's one of the things I think people romanticize a little bit about about the pyramids. And then going back to your adult league teams, I guess theoretically, one of the teams that you're coaching or one of the teams that you're refereeing games for, <laughs> if they were promoted nine or ten times could be in the Bundesliga, right? That, that's absolutely right, yeah. And, and, it, and, it, and it, in rare cases, it does happen. Um, the, the other uh, way that a club can get some glory is, is that the, the interconnection of the, of the cup competitions. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I, I, I referee several games a season in the Frankfurt Cup. And any team in Frankfurt can enter a team. Even theoretically, Eintracht could enter their team, but they don't. So it's uh, it's a, a cup between say between seventy amateur clubs of Frankfurt, and one team will win that, and the next season they will get a place in the uh, regional in the state cup. Mm. And if by some miracle they were to win that, because that does include uh, some professional teams, that, that the winners of that are qualified for the German FA Cup first round. And that's how you get uh, in the German Cup first round. You get some obscure names showing up. They have qualified for that by virtue of winning their, their, their state cup. And then, of course, beyond that, you can say, well, if they win that, they would get in the Europa, Europa League. And if they win the Europa League, they get in the Champions League. So <laughs> you could, you could, you can. It is all interconnected, and, and it would take some kind of strange miracle for it to happen. Because with, with, with Hoffenheim. In a way, it has happened. That was a, a, a village team, right. and taken over by Dietmar Hopp, who played for them in his youth, became a, a multi-millionaire through software, and has taken them all the way up the pyramid, up, up to the Bundesliga, and uh, to qualify for the, the Champions League as well. So that, that, that it, I like, I like that very much. It's the same. It's the same in England. The possibilities. Uh, of rising are, is always there, even if it's unlikely. The, the downside, of course is the decline of one's great clubs, which is very, very sad to see. Um, you, you see, especially since they introduced relegation from the English Football League, how a lot of clubs have not just dropped out of the league, but have gone bankrupt or have been forced to reform several several divisions down. Um, but somehow, they, most of them keep going and coming back in one form or another, and it, it, it's quite a testimony to the resoluteness of, of the local fans that the, the, the teams like that keep surviving at all. So in, in, in Germany, yes, everything's, everything's connected in that way and the, the pyramid system is an object of fascination for, for soccer geeks like me <laughs> and I do like to, to follow the team. Teams that I've refereed, I'll often follow for months afterwards uh, on the internet to see what, what's happened to them, and if, if they were particularly good or if they were particularly uh, aggressive. <laughs> there was a team that I, uh, one team I showed three red cards to on, on, on one afternoon, and I was particularly follow, fascinated by their disciplinary record after that. And uh, in fact, I ended up refereeing them again uh, this season, and they were most of the players who misbehaved that day seemed to have disappeared from the club and they were actually 
they, they, they were very good. But um, there's, there's always, the, 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 as, I, as I said before about the refereeing blog, there's, you, it's, it's a whole, it's not just a network of clubs, it's a network of, of stories. Um, several clubs in Frankfurt are based on, on their ethnic background. And some very uh, surprising, there's a Korean club in Frankfurt, for example. There's, uh, there is an Eritrean club. There is a Croatian club, a Bosnian club. Um, several, several, several mixed clubs. There are a lot of clubs, uh, um, ethnically North African based. Uh, there's Maccabi, which is, is a, a Jewish based club as well. And, uh, one game I refereed earlier this season was between a cup tie that was in the Frankfurt Cup. I was just talking about between a Kurdish team and a Turkish team. And, uh, that, I didn't even realize until two minutes before kickoff that, there were that but those were the two, I thought they were both Turkish teams. And the refereeing colleague who was a member of the Kurdish club explained to me just before kickoff uh, what the situation was. And I'm like, oh, thanks for pointing that out. This is going to be an interesting evening. And it was a very interesting evening. It was like keeping a, the cap on a, an exploding tinderbox. But oh, wow. uh, we, we got away with 10 yellow cards, no dismissals, and, and me cycling home without any of my limbs broken. So that was uh, what I was I was most grateful for and concerned about. Um, that, uh, it, so it, it's, uh, you know, people talk about soccer as being this thing that brings people together. And in, in one sense, on one level, that's absolutely true in that all these different people from different backgrounds, different countries, different ethnicities uh, meet and play soccer with each other and against each other. On the other hand, there's the, there are the, the flare points where it doesn't work out so well because there is a particular difference of outlook or opinion. And uh, in that respect, it, it can end up getting pretty nasty. Um, but one thing I was going to mention earlier about youth soccer, which is, which I, is coming back to me now, was that the referees here in Frankfurt, we actually went on strike uh, the weekend before that because one of my colleagues was physically attacked uh, by a player in an under-17 game and actually had cuts to his body uh, merely for not showing a yellow card to an opponent. Um, and one of the, the players on, on the other team went completely nuts. And that was a culmination of several incidents, just a general environment of poor sporting values in the games, in, in the city's youth games that, that uh, <clears throat> prompted us to actually stage a, a weekend walkout uh, among youth games. There was a, a, a young referee we, in Frankfurt. We train, I think, between 50 and 60 young referees every year, and about half of them drop out very quickly. Right. Within a year, because they they can't they can't put up with the the stress, the comments from parents and um, coaches, especially. And there was one kid who was refereeing his first ever game, <clears throat> an under eleven game, and he even had one of my uh, refereeing colleagues there to observe him and coach him during and help him through his first game. And one of the coaches completely uh, went berserk. And the poor kid in, in refereeing his first ever game. So that that was, together with the physical attack prompted us to, um, to to go on strike and withdraw our services for the weekend. Got a lot of local coverage. Um, it was a bit controversial among the referees ourselves because <clears throat> it wasn't something we actually voted on. 
uh, wasn't discussed. We were just told ah. we are striking this weekend and we were all withdrawn from the games that we'd been allocated. Now, I personally supported the action, but I didn't really support the way we, we went about it. And uh, and there's a debate to be had about, is this the right way to protest? Uh, did it do any good? We got a lot of media coverage. Um, I, uh, the, the following weekend, um, one of my uh, coaching colleagues, he he, refer, uh, he coaches in the age group above me, boys under 17. Uh, he hadn't put his result into the system, and we asked him why that was. He said, oh, the game was abandoned because the opposition coach started calling the referee son of a whore and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that was just one week after the strike. So you wonder, well, is, is that the most effective way of going about changing in the sporting culture and I think there are several other ways that you need to have more dialogue between uh, the clubs the trainers and the, and the referees and most of all you need to have a, a disciplinary process that really comes down a lot harder than it does at the moment I, I had a game a cup game that was abandoned after 70 minutes I abandoned it after there was a mass fight broke out between players spectators <clears throat> I was the only referee there we don't have linesmen for our game we don't have assistants and they tried to calm things down for a couple of minutes and they just weren't having it. So I, I walked off the field and abandoned the game. That came to a disciplinary hearing and, and the home team who'd started it were fined 50 euros. So it, was, it, gives, you, it gives you an idea of, of, of uh, you know, why, why these things tend to repeat themselves rather than anybody sobering up and saying, uh, oh, my God, you know, we've got fined 1,500 euros. That's enough to threaten the clubs very existence. Right, right, how much money are we talking, how much Maybe. money do these clubs have and are, are, are players... Club, club, the clubs don't have any, any money. I mean, they're, 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 they're reliant completely on uh, their own fundraising activities and on uh, member contributions. So, uh, the member contributions are very low. So, if I, if I uh, take on a new player on my youth team, he has a, he or she has a 30 euro <clears throat> Signing on fee, which is just to cover administrative costs, and then annual uh, fees are 90 euros. So you, it's very, very cheap compared to the US, which is good. Um, you, but the clubs are constantly struggling for money. So that is, that is one area where, where the, the disciplinary measures could definitely have some effect because if clubs are hit in the pocket, then they already they can already find uh, each club has to provide a certain number of referees per year, uh, depend, depending on how many uh, teams they run. And if there's a shortfall, they have to pay a fine for that. Of course, there are fines for there are administrative fines for failing to file a match report on time and that kind of thing. There are uh, fines for uh, yellow cards, red cards, and so forth. So there's <clears throat> there, you'd think there would be enough reason for clubs to actually uh, uh, come down hard on 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 uh, people who are contravening the rules, and some of them do, but just enough of them just don't. There are certain clubs who are repeat offenders and. Uh, the question really is how, how to deal with them. Do you, do you hit them so hard that they're forced to shut down? Do you sit down and talk with them? Or do you go out and strike and see if that has any, any effect? And uh, it's, it's an ongoing debate. And right now it's, it's, uh, it, it's a very heated debate within, within the city's footballing culture. I'll keep you posted. All right. So it, it <clears throat> seems like in comparison with the U.S., and this is – also, what I've been able to to glean from reading about England, 
in researching there is that uh, there's the what's similar is that there's the elite pro level where the academies are fully funded um, and we're just getting that here now to where most MLS clubs run a fully funded academy um, and then there's a level where you're not paying very much I mean I, I for recreational soccer it might be three figures I guess it's three figures per season now but it's still and of course there's plentiful financial aid for those for those who need it but that sort of <laughs> middle level where you're paying two to five thousand dollars a year uh, doesn't exist, and that's yeah. No, there's there's, there's, there's nothing like that here. Um, there never has been, and, and hopefully there never will. Um, and, that, and that's down to the obviously the, the wealth of the Bundesliga clubs. The, 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 all teams in the first and second division are required to have an academy. Uh, ten teams in the third division have one as well, and I think uh, half a dozen or so in in the fourth division are also and then uh, have an have, a, have an academy, even though they're not required to do so. So through through the wealth of those clubs, it's it's not necessary to 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 be able to pay uh, uh, to to play at the top level, and um, I think that. Prevents any kind of distortion or, or, or any kind of debate about who who is getting into these places. It's purely done on on <coughs> capability and attitude and uh, prospects for development, rather than uh, being connected with with uh, your parents' ability to pay. <laughs> and uh, uh, and, I, and I know when when I was in uh, lived in the U.S. that used to be a perpetual debate uh, about football being a white suburb, soccer being a white suburban sport. And um, I don't think it, it did the game in the U.S. any favors. And I don't, I don't know if there are any moves to to push the sport away from that from that kind of culture in the U.S. Now I'm, I'm too much out of the loop now to know. The situation, but I would hope that uh, the discussions that you've had are, are going to, at some point, at least, to to lead to a reform. Uh, you mentioned the, the MLS youth academies. Are they pay for play, pay to play in any respect, or is that purely done on on merit? Uh, DC United is uh, still charges. Um, the thinking is that now that DC United has its own stadium, that that's going to change the financial situation a bit, and they may be uh, able to fully fund it. And and granted, I mean, um, as far as I know, the tryouts are are you know they, they'll take you regardless of whether or not you can pay, and they have financial aid available. And that's what all these clubs say is that oh well, we have financial aid available uh, for every for everyone the. The other issue that comes up is that you end up with a lot of people who simply can't make the travel because it's if you're in if you're in a financially disadvantaged family, chances are it's not just that you don't have a lot of money. You may be working multiple jobs to try to make ends meet, and you know if you're a stockbroker, you can take your kid uh, wherever you want to go on a Saturday or a Sunday. If you're yeah. working in a restaurant, trying to you know, and you have to be there, and you can't you can't just say to your boss, "Hey, my kid has a, a soccer." You know, we live in D.C. and my kid has a soccer game in New Jersey 
on Saturday, I need to take him there. You may not be yeah. able to do that. And so yeah. that that leads into the other question, which is that um, it, it sounds like if you have 70 clubs in Frankfurt, it seems like the, the travel requirements would be rather minimal. Yeah, there's a there's a obviously there's a huge public transport system in Frankfurt. You can get around no problem. We don't we don't run a car in the city. I go everywhere by bike or by uh, bus or or metro or trams. So <clears throat> certainly once kids are old enough and kids start here very independently, very young to to find their way around town. My my own daughter, she was. 16 when we moved back here my younger daughter and she was suddenly amazed at the freedom that was opened up to her by having a travel card and not having to rely uh, on myself or my wife having to drive her absolutely everywhere she went which was which was the case uh, in the state right i, I think you're right yeah, the, 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 just the sheer geography of the city or even if you're living further out those train train networks you you would not necessarily be reliant on your on your parents uh, driving you somewhere in order to be able to participate in sporting activities um, so yeah that, that's not that's not really not really an issue here at all right and I happen to know the Frankfurt uh, train system a little bit from having been there in 2011 for the women's World Cup uh, mm-hmm. out to um, yeah, going out to the stadium is on the end of the line, as I recall, or uh, or the, the end of a line. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's the end of a tram. It's the end of a tram line. You can get a, a, a train out there. It's ten minutes, even less, I think, from the main station out to the stadium. <clears throat> an, over, an overground train, and uh, I, I usually, I say, I usually cycle out there, and or or even walk out there. It's just not that uh, not that difficult to find. And I, I cycle to all the games. Referee as well, which is usually raises an eyebrow, and I see this grey-haired, olderish guy showing up on on his bicycle, and then you, <laughs> you announce that you're the referee. And <laughs> one guy saw me arriving one day, and he 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 came out the change rooms, and he thought I was one of the opposition players, and he just looked at me and goes, "Oh, great, we're going to win today." <laughs> And I said, "Well, I wasn't so sure about that. I'm the referee. I'm not one of the opposition players." He went, "Oh, okay." And uh, they ended up losing five nil. I was very tempted to say to him, "You know, actually, I think if if I'd been on your team today, you might have had more of a chance." But, uh, <laughs> so, you you mentioned uh, you know your children. What? Uh, how's the experience for them? And they they must have played some youth soccer in the U.S. as well. Right before before you moved, they did. They, they both played uh, an MSI um, classic. Yes, uh, my my older daughter had a, a one season on a uh, travel team, which she hated, and uh, she went straight back to MSI classic because she just didn't <clears throat> didn't enjoy the intensity of it. Right. For those who don't know, MSI classic is a little bit above the ba- the basic recreational level. Um, as I understand it, it's yeah, it's between rec, yeah. it's between rec and, and travel soccer, so it right. was about so good enough to be sort of in, enjoyable, but not that intense necessarily. Right. As uh, so a, lo- a lot of uh, a lot of players end up there when I think once, like my daughter, they they've sampled travel soccer and they uh, decide that that's just not for them. They would rather be more <clears throat> relaxed and play with their friends. 
Um, so they, they, they both played for their school team as well, and they, they enjoyed that as well because they were playing, again, even more with their friends. Um, now, my, my older daughter just, uh, she kind of stopped playing for a few years, and then she started playing casually when she went off to university in Edinburgh. And mm. uh, last weekend, she's currently doing her study year in Shanghai, and last weekend played for the Shanghai University women's team. And she and a fellow German girl were the first foreigners to represent the team uh, at a tournament they played out uh, somewhere in the backwaters of China. It got some local media coverage. So <laughs> but she, she said, you know, it sounds really great now that I'm representing the university, but really they're not very good. <laughs> so it, it, it's, not, it's not Duke versus North Carolina, I would guess. No, no, I don't. I don't think so. But uh, it was. It was. She got. You know, she had her own shirt with a with a name printed on it in Chinese lettering. So I think she was kind of kind of proud, quite oh, pleased nice. with that. Um, but I, I always said to them, "Don't play just because I'm your coach and I've always wanted you to play. If you feel like you want to give up at any time, then do." And they did both stop playing around about the age of sixteen, except for their school team. Uh, I think because they started to have other interests at the weekends, but I'm happy that my older daughter has resumed playing again now, and and and, that, and that's I think the the main uh, idea behind me coaching youth teams now in Germany. Why why I started coaching again? I had so many voluntary coaches when I was a kid who put in time and effort to 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 make my weekends enjoyable, and of course at that age, and you're as a teenager, you don't appreciate it at all. So the reason I resumed coaching here is I saw how many clubs there are in this city and how many of them are desperately short of youth coaches. And and I started to coach again here. And, and all you can do is that you hope to, to instill in the players uh, uh, some sort of love of the game that they will continue to play and continue, and continue to enjoy it. I actually had a, a big uh, fit last night at my training session, my boys under 15 team, because I started accusing them of not loving the game enough. To, they weren't putting enough effort into the to the drill I'd set up. You know, they were doing these sort of half-hearted passes. And, and <laughs> I just I said, you know, come on, you know, you've got to show me you want to be in the team on Saturday. You've got to show me that you, know, you really want to be out here. And for God's sake, Tell me you actually love football. And uh, being teenage, 14, 15-year-old teenage boys, they just looked at me as though they were worried I was going to completely flip out and be carried away to a secure institution. But they did <laughs> start to play a little bit faster and a little bit more pep after that. Um, but it's, you know, as I said earlier, it's, it's a little bit, it's a really difficult age for, for boys. And I can remember the kind of stupid stuff I used to do at that age as well. So you have to be part coach and part sort of uh, carer and social worker to try and stop them getting off the rails. And and you hope that, that, that soccer can can help them maintain a balance in their lives and have, have something for them to hold on to right now and, and look back on later as something that they really enjoy doing. Yeah, that that sounds a bit like my Monday night. Um... They they did a bit better on Wednesday, and to reward them, um, I let them scrimmage the girls' team that shares our field. So uh, they they uh-huh. they enjoyed that probably too much. Um, <laughs> there, there's a little bit of uh, preening that goes on. Uh, there was uh, this kind of shy kid who is really good and scored a a beautiful goal, uh, the only goal of the game because we're playing in half a field and we're playing eleven v eleven. There's not much space. 
but he scored this beautiful goal and broke out into a little dance, uh, which I had never seen before. Uh, so you get all sorts of interesting dynamics there. Uh, but in terms of coaching, uh, you're volunteering. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and what sort of licensing do they require for uh, for a coach at that level? Uh, truthfully, don't require uh, anything at all um, other than enthusiasm and the willingness to commit to some time. Um, so it's a little bit like the the playing system, though. If you if you have no idea, then somebody's going to find out fairly soon, and you'll either have parents complaining or uh, the, the club itself would probably suggest that you you might want to do something else with your spare time. So I had to have the benefit of several years experience in the US but that was all pretty much on the fly I did a D license in the US but that was only a, a weekend course so what I started to do here is a C license which is three week long courses uh, there's a basic weeks course and then you can choose out of four modules either kids soccer, youth soccer goalkeeping or adult uh, training. So uh, next week I'm actually about to do the third and final component of, of the C license course, which is paid for by my club, uh, yeah. by the way. And um, it's it's uh, it's done out of the Hessen uh, Football Association's training centre, and it's really very professionally, impressively done. It's actually inspiring when you're out there. If you ever have any thoughts about giving up, which I occasionally do. Uh, these courses have really helped put me back on track. And they really they give you a real orientation on, on where you should be going with certain age groups. It's very precise. So I chose the modules of, for, for ch- kid soccer and youth soccer, which covers uh, under six all the way up to under 19, uh, as I'm not interested in coaching adult teams. And it, it's just been just been superb. You meet you on the course with 20, 25 other coaches from around the state. Uh, you spend the evenings in the bar sharing ideas, exchanging stories about your, your teams and um, the way you coach them and the, uh, the parents that you deal with and how you you deal with all those player issues we were talking about earlier with, with adolescents, for example, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great way to, to advance yourself. I think I have to do an exam at some point, and I, I'm not booked in to do that until October, but um, I don't really, really, at my age, I'm not really bothered about having the, the, the letters after my name. I, I'm just really grateful to have the chance to, to improve as a coach where I feel up until last year I was pretty much improvising. I didn't really tend to plan uh, sessions. I was doing everything by memory, and um, now I'm I'm, I'm uh, much more organised and maybe a bit too too organised for some of my players' likings. But uh, really, really enjoying it and get, getting getting a lot out of it now. And and again, in terms of results, my uh, under fifteen team has won I think maybe four four or five games all season and drawn three and lost some others. Quite heavily, it's very much in, in the US. Uh, uh, you get a lot of one-sided games, and that's exactly the same here as well. I was I was a little bit surprised about how they're unable to to mediate uh, the quality towards a slightly more fairer system. Um, but even from heavy defeats, you can learn something. You can point to all the abilities of the other team and say, well, if you practice more. 
and, and work on your speed and work on your first touch, then maybe you'll have a chance and you'll be able to play like that team that just whopped our asses 7-0. So you could, I, I think it's uh, uh, even uh, you, you have to try and take something positive out of every game, even even if you've got an absolute uh, hammering like that. So in the the few moments we have left before I have to before we both have to duck off the phone here, um, what can we borrow from Germany? Uh, in the United States, that would make that would make sense. I mean, obviously, you know, having a training having a training center within you know twenty miles of everybody would be rather excessive in a country with a, with our geography. But w- what can we what can we borrow? I think uh, what the Ger- Germans have is is an uh, a extremely efficient network of scouting. Systems, um, which we talked about earlier, the fact that they miss very few good players, and and I think um, the other thing you obviously you need to get rid of in the state is, is pay to play. You have to have a, a, a merit based uh, system if you want to find and, and nurture the best players. Um, that goes uh, as well. I, I, it's, I don't want to get too deeply involved in, in, in the politics of coaching, but I think paying coaches vast amounts of money to coach youth teams uh, of players who are at, at best of a recreational standard is uh, an anomaly in the U.S. system that, that has to be uh, got rid of and and. and you know, I, I, I coached uh, my daughter's teams in the U.S., so I didn't charge a fee there. But I had the impression from some parents that they would rather have paid me. Some of them almost begged me that they had to give me some money. <laughs> and, and I think there's maybe a different perception of capitalism that, you know, unless you're paying for something, it's not worth anything. And uh, I sometimes look back and think, well, should I have charged money? Because a lot of... Some players just took advantage of it or the families took advantage of it in the point of view, well, we're not paying for it, so we don't really have to bother showing up for training or, <laughs> or you know, I'm going to miss half the games. It doesn't matter because it hasn't cost us anything anyway. So I'm, I'm a bit split on whether that was a, whether that was a good decision or not. But uh, here is just uh, very – I think I think some, some clubs try to compensate their coaches with a small amount of expenses uh, for their time and, and time and trouble. Um, but but that, that that is really one of the, the, the money factor is is the main difference between Germany and and, and the US uh, as well as the the structural factor. That, that Germany has a structure that's been there for decades and decades, which which the US uh, doesn't have the advantage of. The fact that you have clubs so entrenched in their communities and cities going back for in some cases for over a hundred years. So that's something that the U.S. won't really be able to make up and, and just can't for reasons of space and geography is not, not going to be able to do. But I think if, if you, you concentrate on a better scouting system to, to pick up players from, from less advantaged areas, uh, and um, I, I think that, that that would be uh, a, a way to, to reform uh, the system so it is, it is less... Uh, of an elite sport and, and more of a sport that, that, that covers every every geographical uh, every every region of, of the country where where soccer is played intensively, especially in, in uh, for example in Hispanic communities. All right. Well, 
to wrap up, we need to plug everything that you're doing and have. We haven't even. Uh, I actually was going to ask you about the NASL at some point in this conversation. I just didn't get around to it. Uh, but you did write the book Rock and Roll Soccer on the old NASL, not the one that is uh, currently suing everybody over here, um, but the one that had Pele and Beckenbauer and all those all those people. And uh, you have the blog Referee Tales and anything else that. Um, Anywhere else people should read your writing? I have, I have a book coming out in August, published in the UK by a publisher called Unbound. It's called The Quiet Fan. It's a kind of memoir about my life and times following soccer in several different countries. And that was, uh, you can actually pre-buy a copy and get your name printed in it at unbound.co.uk. UK, if you search around for the quiet fan, you'll be able to locate it. Most excellent. Well, thank, thanks. So that, that's that's my way of compensating you for for this is, <laughs> is to uh, make sure you get some book sales out of it. So, Ian, thanks very much for checking in from Germany. Best of luck with everything you're doing. Thanks very much for having me on, Bo. Take care. Well, that was a great conversation. Really fun to catch up with Ian. We could have talked all day, but I literally had another interview coming up for something that will be in 442 pretty soon. Keep an eye out for that. Keep an eye on the blog. Just keep an eye out. It's safer that way. Rant on! Rant on!